Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is episode three, and we keep talking about how to possibly top episodes one and two. And we've got not only one, but two guests, starting with our headliner, your dear friend, Candace. Allison Felix. Yeah, on this episode, we talk about more than just her winning races. And obviously, I had to throw in that she has more gold medals than our first two guests combined. Uh, you had to throw that in there. And then later, we'll have CJ McCollum. You guys probably know him from the Portland Trailblazers, but we know him as a fellow podcaster. So he joined us to give us some advice. Candace Parker is along with us tonight. And moments ago, Kristen Ludlow. Parker, what a look inside. Kristen Ledlow is on our sideline with the terrific Candace Parker. I'm Kristen Ledlow. I'm Candace Parker. And this is Ledlow and Parker. So we've got a big episode three, but first we have to journey back to episode two because you challenged Charles one-on-one. He took the bet. He doubled down. Hold on, Kristen. First of all, I want to say I didn't start all this. I wasn't like at home in my mirror like, I'm going to yeah. challenge Charles Barkley. <laughs> That's who I'm going to challenge. <laughs> because what a challenge exactly. it would be. You know what? Let's Let's roll the clip. I'm going to double down. Auburn a woman education. can't beat me in a sport. Candace Parker, it's on. Wait, Make wait. First of all, you said a sport, too. So, Chuck, basketball, I'm going to look right in the camera. Basketball, soccer, bowling, golf. Yeah, I was going to mention golf. golf. Yeah. You want to do lacrosse. Yeah. Heck, I'll do curling. There's no sport. Are you kidding me? He said a woman can't Are beat him joking? in a sport. I can't think of any sport that a woman wouldn't beat him in. And the funny thing is, I was watching this at home <laughs> with my daughter, and Layla's like, is he serious? Yeah. No. And I was like, I guess. So, I mean, like I said, we're going to Chicago. Let's do it. I double, double, double down on the bet. I just want to be there. I, I want to, if, if I can call commentate if I, you know what I don't have to commentate I'll sit there quietly just watch. I, <laughs> either way that was episode two if you haven't listened to it listen to it let's get into episode three and that's, that's what, what we said. said I will handle it with dignity and class you certainly messed up a lot more than I did I think all of us just want to leave the league better than we came into it and that's what we said that's what we said <laughs> we said <laughs> We're diving into some deeper NBA headlines. We're giving you guys our point of view on what makes this a story. Sometimes we'll agree, disagree with each other. You'll agree, disagree with us. Either way, that's, that's what, what we said. said. There it is. Yeah, I, we're, we're getting it. I Episode like, three, it's coming. I feel like we're there. Load management, that's the big topic. It's been a huge topic of conversation around the league in the early weeks of the season. And of course, then Kawhi Leonard and Doc Rivers made it an even bigger topic of conversation now moving forward. I want to know, though, from you, because load management could arguably be proven to have worked if you look at last year's Toronto Raptors team. But I want to know from you, as a competitor, would you allow load management to be part of your team's competitive strategy? I would think that that's what you would want to do. As a player, I'm competitive. I want to play every single night. Because your load was managed unwillingly yeah, at I, the end of your... Load was managed unwillingly at the end of my soon? season. Yeah, it's way, it's way too it? soon. We were on the whole, like, that's what we said thing. <laughs> and now, no, we're, we're not. Off it. Yeah, we're not, we're not here, Kristen. <laughs> if, though, it were a strategy no, that a team... I agree. Say, yeah. And I think that as a player, you want to you wanna play. But as an organization, if I'm paying my best player... $200 million. I want him to be healthy and I want him to play when it's important. So you look at Kawhi Leonard, it helped. You look at a Derrick Rose. Could Derrick Rose have benefited from load management? Could perhaps the Golden State Warriors, the team that the Raptors beat last season in the NBA Finals, benefited from it last season? And I think it's a topic that, you know, we're going to start having more research. But there are places out there that can basically draw your blood and tell you when you're susceptible to injury. With the amount of games that are being played, there are statistics that show it's usually later in practice. It's usually in the fourth quarter when injuries happen. We look at even Clay Thompson with playing and going to five straight finals. 
the wear and tear that's on your body. And it starts so young now because these athletes are playing year round and multiple times a day from the time that they're eight, nine, 10 years old. And we didn't know any better. I mean, AAU was like, hey, you're playing seven games today. Oh, I remember that. We're going to have time to go to Denny's in the morning, (laughs) McDonald's for pregame. Right. In the middle of the game. Delicious. And then afterwards, like, let's go pick up some Sonics. (laughs) And nutritious. (laughs) There was, though, a memo sent out from the NBA's president of league operations clarifying that load management is not an injury. Resting is not considered an injury or an appropriate description of an injury. Load management or any similar phrase like returning from an injury is a permissible description only in connection with a healthy player that's missed a game due to resting. How important do you think that that memo was? I think it's very important in terms of the NBA as a whole because the NBA is nothing without their fans. And when you're a fan and your favorite team comes in town, and as we've seen with the Spurs in years past, as we've seen now with the Clippers – Your favorite player isn't playing in a primetime game that you paid your money to go see, and there's no explanation other than rest. It doesn't look very good for an NBA team. For a franchise, if I'm trying to protect the health of my players, then we've seen with Greg Popovich listed (laughs) Tim Duncan as old one time is the reasoning why he was out. I think I'm getting that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) He listed... I feel that coming on. Yeah, like you're just, it's (laughs) definitely something that I'm feeling uh, coming on. But, you know, it's a balance of three things. You got to balance the player, the organization, and the NBA as a whole. And it, you can't have, it wasn't a good look when Doc Rivers came out and said, you know, he's healthy, he's never felt better. Which is why there was a fine. Which is why there was was a fine. Inconsistent with the report that they sent to the league, essentially saying that he's continuing to manage this knee injury. But there's the thing. Now we're going to get into verbiage. It's going to be the same thing. You might as well put load management, but it's just going to be, well, he's coming back from an injury and he doesn't play back to back. How do you solve it then? So what do you do? Do you shorten the season? Do you force guys to play? What's the solution? You're not going to be able to – how can you dictate whether somebody is injured or not? Other than what the NFL does sometimes and you have an IR, I I mean, there's – how, how is there a, a way for you to dictate whether somebody is hurt or not? I think it's just press, and it looks better when it doesn't say load management. Well, Kristen, it's been about a year since Carmelo has Ooh. laced up his Jordans. I can't believe that. And has played in the NBA. It was around a year ago that the story broke that he would no longer be with the Houston Rockets, and we – I was one of the people that assumed last year he would have gotten picked up by some team at some point. point. Right. And he didn't. And recently, he confirmed that he wants to play in the NBA. Do you want to play? 2000%. Make that the headline. He said 2000%. Which I am no mathematician, but that seems high. Uh, Syracuse math. 2000%. (laughs) He wants to play. And to make that a headline. It worked, because here we are. So we're doing just that. Yeah. We're going to make it a headline. Kristen, what are your thoughts? And do you think that we'll see Mello again in an NBA uniform? First and foremost, my thought is that we haven't seen, and I could be wrong, correct me if I'm wrong, we haven't seen an NBA player with a bigger name, a more storied career, Then Carmelo Anthony, with his career cut short with absolutely no say in it. Somebody with that big a name, somebody with that big a following, somebody with that big an impact on the game of basketball usually gets to decide, at least in some way, barring an injury, that he wants to be done. He gets to do the one last dance that we saw from Dwayne Wade. Or if he is injured for any long time, then he at least gets to decide when he's going to retire, when he's going to to have that one last farewell. And so that's my initial reaction to all of this is we owe that to Carmelo as such a huge part of the story of the game of basketball. We owe it to him. But then you've got to think about what that means. That means that some team has to sign him. That means that the expectations surrounding Carmelo Anthony have to change. We have to stop expecting him to be a superstar on the offensive end of the floor. 
he has to stop expecting himself to be a superstar or a pivotal part of any of these franchises. And he has to decide that he'd be willing to play in any given situation. He said several times he wouldn't go to fill in the blank. He wouldn't want to play for fill in the blank. So if we owe that to Carmelo Anthony as basketball fans, and if the NBA owes that to Carmelo Anthony, something's got to give. Something definitely has to give. But I think in this year's time, if Carmelo hasn't grown mentally into where he's at in game in the game of basketball. But do we know that? Because he's not getting workouts. He's not getting tryouts. It's not and like that's his... my point. I don't know if it was Carmelo. And, you know, you can go and debate. Good guy, bad guy, bad for the team, b- bad for this, whatever. Let's say all of these things are true. There's a lot of guys where all these things are true and they have jobs. And Houston last year did not get off to a great start. They had injuries. At one point, they were 10th in the West. Everybody was out. Eric Gordon was out. Clint Capella was out. Chris Paul was out. And they made Carmelo the scapegoat. That's exactly what We spoke what about I, this earlier. Right. Yep. They made him the scapegoat. And I don't think that that is his fault at all. Now, is it something that he goes to a system where it actually utilizes his strengths? Do you think he's going to go to a situation and be something that he's not able? They want him to, like, be a defensive stopper. Not going to happen. Like, be realistic here. But at the same time, if I'm Carmelo, I'm asking, like, where are my friends? Where where are my teammates in all of this? Right, because you can't look at every single roster on all 30 NBA teams and tell me that even – 80% of those names are better or more effective or would be, I mean, they're not more so than Carmelo Anthony. You know, you can't look at rosters and say that each one of these guys are far more necessary to the game than Carmelo could be right now. However, you make a great point in that some of the names at the tops of those rosters have had the opportunity to make space for them on their teams or to at least say something in regards to this retirement tour we want to give him and they haven't and that goes back to my point that sometimes the person that is in the midst of everything and 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 is going through everything shouldn't have to be the one that speaks on it and do I think Carmelo should be in the league yes a hundred percent but there have been numerous times where you've heard okay he's gonna have a workout with this team or he's going to be signed with this team, or the Lakers, if they would have made the playoffs at the end of last year, he was going to get signed on for the playoffs, but they just didn't make the playoffs, so that's why he didn't make it. It just isn't sitting right with me, and I do believe that is it going to be positive if he does come back? Because if he goes out and shoots, because as a player, you want to show everybody what they've been missing, but is that to his advantage to go out and and shoot 30, 40 times? You know, it's just... It's kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't at well, this point. Well, that's why I say that we have to not only adjust our expectations for Carmelo, but he probably has to adjust his own expectations for himself. He's not going to be expected to carry the offensive load on not any one of the 30 NBA teams right now if he were to be signed. But if he were to simply say, I want to win, I want to be whatever it is that this team needs me to be at this point in my career, and I'll take any amount of money to do that, which is also key, then perhaps there could be the right fit. So will we see Carmelo on an NBA team again? If one of his friends were to step up and during, I, I see it maybe after All-Star, it would be his best chance to get on a roster for a team that is competing or vying for championship, maybe a top spot. But he's going to need a LeBron, a Kyrie, a Kevin Durant, a Chris Paul, people like that, a James Harden, to step up and say, hey, we need to sign this guy. Well, either way, he got what he wanted. He made a headline. So I guess we'll have to see what happens. I'd love, though, for him to come make a headline on Ledlow and Parker. Mello, you can 3,000%. Yeah. You can come and say, you can up that. 4,000. Yeah. 4,000%. Want to play basketball again. And that's what we said. Up next, we've got Allison Felix. Allison Felix. Allison Felix from the US of A. Allison becomes 
the most medaled and the most gold medals ever. In the first two episodes, Kobe Bryant joined us. He has two Olympic medals, Kristen. Mm, yeah. Chuck, he joined us. He has two Olympic medals as well. Several accolades. Yeah, then on so, the first I mean it's good. We're not knocking weeks. them. But guess what? We had to top it. We had to top we it. We had to top. We it. asked how we could top Kobe. <laughs> well, guess what? Our next guest, Miss Allison Felix, has six Olympic gold medals and three Olympic silver medals. So top that, Chuck and Kobe. They can't. I think we're gonna have to be done after this episode. Yep. Drop the mic. But I would like to to welcome one of my great friends to the podcast. Allison Felix. Thank you for joining us, Allison. Hi, guys. Of course. It's my pleasure. Allison, we've talked a lot about your accolades, but we want to talk about what most recently has set you apart because you were forced to start focusing on one day at a time from some of your bigger goals to some of your smaller ones. Will you just tell us a little bit more about how and why that perspective shifted? Yeah, so everything changed for me almost a year ago now. Um, I had my daughter, Cameron, and um, it was just a really difficult year in a lot of different ways. Uh, First of all, I had a really difficult birth, and so I gave birth two months early, and I dealt with health issues myself, and then Cameron was in the NICU for about a month. And so that was just a difficult time. In my mind, I knew I wanted to go back to competing, and I had an idea of what that looked like. You know, I wanted to get right back, you know, everything laid out. And so that just turned everything upside down with that whole plan. And at the same time, I was dealing with a lot of issues sponsorship-wise, and um, I was in negotiations, and I wasn't feeling supported in my pregnancy, um, and I just had a lot of difficulty and fight there. And I realized that a lot of other women had experienced that as well. And so that was a whole, a whole nother thing that I had to take on. So it was, it was a really challenging year. And before we even get into that, how difficult was it to come back and compete at the highest level 10 months after that birth? It was hard. I mean, I came to Candace first because I mean, she looked like the model, you know, of, of doing that like seamlessly and gracefully. Um, not so much for me. It was uh, just, it was really tough, you know, dealing with, you know, what felt like a new body. And um, I would say it was just very humbling. You know, things that were once really, really easy for me were now super challenging. And so um, I was forced to just really take it slowly and focus on what I could do and um, be kind to myself and be patient and um, get back to the basics, really. You know, it's... It's crazy how when you're pregnant, you have all these plans. And one thing for me when I was pregnant with Layla and then I had her and she was here, you realize, you know, you can have all these things and how you want them to go and plans that you have. And but that all changes because now Layla dictates what I do (laughs) when I sleep, how things are my body. And, you know, Cammie does the same thing as I've seen. You know, how can you say how you attacked pregnancy versus once you had her, what was your mindset, you know, in terms of setting goals and, and you know, making sure that you're still challenging yourself, but you're also, you know, understanding that being a mom is pretty important as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're exactly right. I had, for me, the same way, you know, I had all these plans, even right down from like how I wanted to give birth, you know, I wanted this whole natural experience and you know, I had this whole idea in my head how it looked, what it was going to look like, and nothing went according to plan. And then, you know, I had the same idea about training. And again, it's like, like you said, your child kind of runs the show at the beginning, and you have to adapt. And that's what I did. You know, it was really just about, okay, you know, how do I get through the day? How do I deal with a lack of sleep? Um, you know, like, let's just kind of break this thing down and make it into smaller terms that I can, um, that I can deal with. But at the same time, it, it completely changed my perspective. It made me, um, so much more grateful and a different source of motivation because before, you know, I've always wanted to win. That's just, I'm a competitor. That's what I do, but it gave me a different purpose almost, you know, I wanted to be able to demonstrate for my daughter what hard work looks like, um, what fighting through adversity looks like and um, not giving up. 
You mentioned that you were fighting a battle on top of that pregnancy and that then becoming a parent. You were fighting for paternal security in a contract negotiation. At what point did you realize that the battle you were fighting would be for more than just you moving forward? Yeah. Um, while I was going through it, I thought a lot, I think it was really special having a daughter also. I thought a lot about, you know, the world that she's going to grow up in. I thought about Layla as well. You know, our daughters, you know, they deserve better than the things that, you know, we're having to fight through. And so that was really at the forefront of my mind. Um, and it became a big part of my fight because um, a lot of what I was fighting for was contractual protection. So, like, in writing, in these contracts, you know, we need to have protection surrounding maternity. Um, and that's, you know, not really about me. I don't really plan to have another child while I'm competing. But I know, you know, all the people coming after me in sport, um, they deserve that. And they deserve to start a family, you know, when they would like to. And, um, you know, and not feel forced one way or the other. Well, Allison, you've you spoke out a lot about also just, you know, knowledge with 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 pregnancy. And, you know, you've spoken in front of Congress and gone out for that fight. What have you learned through that process of what needs to be done and what would you like to see done in the future uh, to make sure that women and children are healthy and you're able to bring home a healthy baby? Yeah, I think a big part of it is awareness because I think back to my own situation um, and I felt like I knew the statistics that black women are almost four times as likely to face death or complications um, giving birth than um, white women. And I felt like I've heard that, you know, I knew something about it, but I didn't really understand it. You know, I didn't think that that could be me, that I could be, you know, one of those women because... I am a professional athlete, you know, I know how to eat healthy, I train through my pregnancy, you know, it's what we do. And so I I understood that and I never saw myself in that position. I think I really took health for granted and that's something that I'll I'll never do again. Um, But um, I want, you know, I want women of color to understand that they are at risk and that oftentimes we have to advocate for our own um, health um, really be heard and just be proactive, you know, um, the right questions to ask when you go to the doctor. And also just a lot more research needs to be done about why this is occurring. You ultimately left one major company that has now standardized their approach across all sports. A lot of that stemming from the fight that you chose to have very publicly, and you signed with, an, with another company, um, saying that you learned to negotiate for more than just money. What did that mean to you? Yeah, I think that I, well, I know I definitely see value um, in other things now. You know, I see value in um, what a company stands for, you know, what their beliefs are. That's really important to me now. Um, when I was younger, I don't know if I really would even be able to know how to determine that. Um, I think these experiences really, you know, show that. I know, um, yeah, I know what I'm interested in. And, you know, partnering with Athleta, their mission is to empower women and girls. And where I'm at right now, that is really, really important to me. And I see, I see value in their mission. You know, it just shows how Cami kind of steals the show and that <laughs> we're just yeah. now, you know, five, ten minutes into the podcast and we're just going to get to... Oh, yeah, you run track, Allison. (laughs) And you're pretty good at it. That, too. That, too. I mean, you won a couple medals, but Cami is still the center of attention. But just to switch gears. um, Yes, and that's the way it's going to be. But switching gears, you're you're training for the 2020 Olympics. You know, I myself as a friend, as an athlete, have had the honor to watch you run in the Beijing Olympics as well as the London Olympics. You know, I know that every Olympics has its challenges in terms of, you know, training and things like that. What is your future training from now until Tokyo? Uh, What does your regiment look like? Yeah, and Candace, I can tell you, I don't know if you know this, but you're the only 
other sport that I've ever seen live in the Olympics when I went to go watch you in 2012. So. Yes. <laughs> well, thank <laughs> so you, like, Allison. I always have to stay off of our seat and stuff, and, you know, so that was the one thing that I, I could go to. Um, but my training now um, is about six days a week. Um, we're right around four to five hours a day, um, about three on the track and two in the gym. And just um, focusing right now, we're conditioning. So we just, today was actually day one of going back to, to training, um, focusing on, you know, getting back into shape and all eyes are on Olympic trials and um, just getting back to top form. I think, you know, coming back from pregnancy, my first year back was a little shaky, and so I'm really excited that now I'm starting to feel like myself again and just um, excited to train at that at that top level. How, then, is training for this fifth Olympics different from the others, not only physically, as you mentioned, but mentally as well? Yeah, I think, well, each game for me, you know, has been a little bit different. You know, there's always been different goals and, um, and all of that. And so looking at this, fifth one, you know, my main goal is make the team. You know, I think that would be such a blessing to make a fifth Olympic team. Um, And I believe if I make that team that I'll be able to do well there. But it's about, um, I think now it's about so much more than just what's done on the track. I feel like, you know, representing other women, I feel like they, hopefully they can relate to some of the things I've been through and just, you know, being a mom and balancing everything. Um, just, you know, representing more than myself when I go to the track. Do you remember your first time on the track post-pregnancy, post-having Cami? And do you remember a workout? Because there's a number of times on your Instagram where I've looked and it's been Cami smiling and you laying down a half dead after a workout. <laughs> <laughs> because there's nothing like coming back after having a child. Um, do you remember that first workout and you know, your feelings and your anxiety uh, after after going through it? I do. I, I remember, <laughs> yes, yeah, so it was, um, <laughs> it was when, um, I think Cammie might have still been in the NICU. It wasn't a real workout, but I got cleared to walk. And I remember I went, like, to the fitness center, and I got on the treadmill, and my coach had told me just, like, walk for 30 minutes. So I'm like... <laughs> walk for 30 minutes like okay this is like a joke like <laughs> I'm gonna knock this out and you know it'll be easy and I remember I got on a treadmill and just like power walking for 30 minutes it was like another level and that's when I really started to get nervous and I was like I think this is going to be really difficult and more than I had even imagined so it was a really humbling experience um but at the same time it was you know it was kind of the start to the journey One of the things that used to drive me absolutely nuts uh, when I had first had Layla was the amount of, um, I would say, not discrediting what it's like to come back after pregnancy. But, you know, you see injuries. I've had ACL. You've had, you know, a number of, of, I remember hamstring, you were out, things like that, just nagging injuries. But there's really nothing Mm -hmm. to compare pregnancy to. Dismissive, perhaps? It's It's dismissive, exactly. And also just kind of when I'm out and about, even now with Layla, people still ask me like, hey, where's Layla? But they didn't really have those same questions towards a LeBron James or a Steph Mm -hmm. Curry. How do you see things kind of evening out in terms of parenting now? Because I know it has changed in the last 10 years with guys being more involved and, you know, missing time because of them having the birth of, uh, of their child. Do you see that change um, now that you've had Cammie? Yeah. I mean, I think we still have a long way to go. I mean, I, I think back to when you had and how quickly you came back and, you know, I was in awe of it when it was going on, but even now I'm in more because I understand like what that is. And I think that it's difficult for a lot of people to really, either they haven't had the experience or, you know, they just, they don't quite get it, like what it takes to be able to come back. Um, So I do feel like we have a long ways to go, but I feel like, you know, men have to do their part as well um, to kind of normalize it so that women can be able to do what they need to do. And I think it is good to see more men step up. I'm, I remember, um, I think Dwayne Wade last year, um, 
put some paternity leave. And I think we, we got to see more of that. I mean, it's, it's necessary and it's a great example um, to be present, you know, for your child and um, that that does take you away from work at times. Well, you brought up Dwayne Wayne. He's going to be one of our new co-workers at TNT. You have also yeah. been part of several very famous moments on TNT, including the run through the tape moment. What do you remember <laughs> about that event? Oh my gosh, so much fun. Um, I remember that there was a false start. Um, <laughs> and I remember how serious Ernie was about recalling this race. And I thought he was like joking at the beginning. And then mm-hmm. I was like, oh no, he's yeah, he mm-hmm. like really serious about this. <laughs> um, so it was just such a hilarious moment. If that race were to happen today, what would the outcome be? Who would win that thing, you think? <laughs> this side of five, six, seven years later. <laughs> I wouldn't sleep already. I just really wanted to know what was going to happen because he was so like ready for this. But, you know, I would hope that there wouldn't be, you know, any more injuries or anything like that. Everybody would be able to finish safely. I love that she says any more injuries. Like It went so poorly before. (laughs) I was a little concerned about some people. Well, we want to play a little game with you before you go, because you're one of the fastest people in the world. So we want to play a speed round. Here we go. The most famous person in your phone, besides, obviously, Candace Parker. Oh, thanks, Kristen. <laughs> it's Candace. I, I, I would have assumed. Yeah, Candace. I'm going with Candace. Oh, well, thanks, Allison. Thank you. <laughs> what is your favorite pre-race meal? Oh, pre-race meal. Um, some type of pasta. Mm. Yes, I don't even run, and I do enjoy a good plate of pasta. <laughs> a pre-podcast meal. Well, yeah, a pre-podcast good. pasta. We need that. Your best <laughs> race training playlist. What song is starting that thing? Oh, I have to have Beyonce, I'm a Diva. Yes. Yes. Very strong. And I love that. There. <laughs> Which Olympic gold medal stands out the most to you and why? And 2012 gold medal in the 200 meters for me because that is my individual gold medal, and it was um, the third time for me. So I had two silver medals before that in the two previous games, and for me it was just when everything came together, and it just represents, you know, everyone who came to help me um, make that moment possible. What is your favorite city you've traveled to in the world? My favorite city in the world. Um, I love... Uh, Monte Carlo, Monaco. Ooh, I like that. Never been. I have never been either. It's going to be on my bucket list. Me, you, Allison, we all go. Perfect. She she drives us around. I know it makes this happen. Ah, exactly. When competitive running is done for you, when we're not having these conversations anymore, how are you going to get your competitive fix? Mm, I think I'll find ways. You know, hopefully in the business world, and you know, just with different ventures. Um, I hope to you know, stay connected and be able to release it um, that way. But, you know, still figuring out how, yeah, where, how it will translate. We're racing in Monte Carlo with us, Candace. That would be fantastic. <laughs> that sounds good we could maybe have a show and we could bring it across the world. This is, we're on to something, well, Kristen. Because this show is now effectively <laughs> over because we can't top Allison. Exactly. That's the new show that's we'll have. That's the to- new show. Allison, thank you so much that's for taking time. the time to join us. <laughs> So glad to join you guys in chat. Here is McCollum for three, and he buries it. Shot block. Oh, McCollum with a block. C.J. McCollum can't miss. C.J. McCollum, thank you for taking the time. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Well, so if you were to describe the Blazers' early season thus far, how would you do it? Um, it's been a roller coaster ride. Uh, we we faced a lot of adversity. With some injuries, um, obviously Zach Collins, our starting before man, went down with a tough injury to start the season about three games in. Whiteside's been in and out of the lineup. Rodney Hood's been in and out of the lineup. Um, Scal hurt his ankle. Uh, I haven't shot the ball particularly well, but the, the bright spot is that we've been able to compete and still be in a lot of games despite struggling offensively and having lapses defensively. So 
I think that's the positive you can take from it is that we've still been able to compete, although we haven't played our best basketball. It's interesting you say that about yourself because at that game, your coach told me during our coach's interview that he doesn't have to say anything to you because he knows eventually your game is going to come back to you. So when you're going through those kind of slumps, what are you saying to yourself? Uh, I believe in positive affirmation. So um, encouraging words to myself, but it's more so just getting back to the basics, uh, getting in the gym, getting shots up, breaking down the film, charting my misses, how am I missing, is it short, is it long, is it left or right, is it in and out, and then just kind of figuring out why that's happening. I think historically I've missed in and out and short, so just being able to have good balance, have a good pace, try to stick to landing and just continue to get to my spots. You all had a lot of success last year, especially beating a great Denver team in an exciting series and getting to the Western Conference Finals. But the year prior to that, you know, you guys had suffered some heartbreak um, in the way in which the season ended. What did you learn from that moment that helped you guys achieve so much success the next season? I think adversity is good for you. I think going through struggle, um, different types of um, not just struggle, but just different types of losses. I think it helps shape you and, and, and make you a better person. It makes you appreciate, you know, the wins that much more. So the losses to not only the Warriors, but getting swept by the Pelicans, I think it helped build character for us. It was a better appreciation, understanding of what it's going to take uh, to have success in the playoffs. And I think it humbles you in the sense of uh, keeping you paranoid. And I think it's good to be paranoid in terms of your work ethic and then being paranoid in terms of trying to figure out ways to, to stay ahead of the curve. And I think we've done those things. And although we're 10 games in and not where we want to be, we, we realize there's still 72 games left to kind of turn things around and play the type of basketball we want to play as we get closer to April. Because this team, as currently assembled, has historically overachieved. After last season's Western Conference Finals appearance, do you feel like perhaps the Blazers are being overlooked this season? I don't think we're being overlooked. I just think that based on our roster construction, we obviously don't have the same roster we had last year. We lost some key players um, from Mo Harkless to Myers Leonard to Evan Turner to Chief Alfred Gamino. And historically, you know, we've had the same guys in the lineup for a long time, and continuity has been our strong suit now. Um, you bring in some of the new additions. We got Ken Bazemore, we got Whiteside, we got Mario, we got Anthony Tolliver. Um, Zach goes out of the lineup. Rodney Hood's here full time now, as opposed to get him at the deadline. And there's just some, some little things you have to adjust to play calling, understanding spacing, understanding our team culture in terms of how we execute offensively and defensively. And it takes time, and I think. As the season progresses, we'll get back to, you know, having that continuity and having the understanding of how everybody's going to contribute and where they're going to contribute that. And I think um, it's good that we're struggling right now. This is the hard part of the schedule where we travel a lot. I think we played 15 of our first 20 on the road, and we're going to be tested with back-to-backs and things like that. And I think it'll pay off later on in the season when we're back at home and, and have already gone through the worst of the worst. Well, the, the Western Conference has been, um, you know, big in the offseason in duos. And you and Dame have been together for a long time. Can you talk about your relationship both on the court and off the court with, with Dame Lillard? Yeah, me and Dame got a great relationship. Um, we've known each other since before we got drafted in the NBA um, in terms of having an understanding of, you know, where we both come from. Our families get along. We're friends. We go to each other's house. We shop. Uh, we vacation together. We've done a lot of stuff um, historically throughout our careers to where we can really trust each other. We have a great understanding of both our games, both our personalities, and we aren't afraid to challenge each other. So when, when I'm not performing the way I'm supposed to, you know, he's telling me keep being aggressive, keep attacking, be you. And when um, he's not doing something that he's supposed to do, I'll tell him or I'll remind him to stick his landing on his balance or uh, it's time to attack or I'm just figuring out ways to kind of keep everybody involved and everybody motivated because it's such a long season and we spend more time with each other than we do our family. So you really get to know uh, not just me and I, but we really get to know all our teammates and what motivates them, what things they like to do in their spare time and how to continue to strengthen our bond. I don't think I realized that you and Dame's relationship dated so far back prior to the NBA. At what point did you guys meet? Uh, We met when I was a senior um, in college, we actually got introduced by a mutual friend, and right before I broke my foot, you know, we started talking, and I realized he had fractured his foot. He was a rookie in the NBA, and I was just asking him about the NBA, asking about the process of, of his recovery, how long it took, what type of things I should be doing, and 
And he was just telling me, like, you're going to be a lottery pick. Like, I've seen the board and, like, not to worry. And I was just freaking out because I had just uh, declared for the draft, went back to school, and ended up fracturing my foot 13 games into my, my uh, senior year. So we ended up meeting in person at the draft lottery, but we were connected uh, my senior year before I had graduated. Speaking of a fractured foot, there's been a lot of controversy about load management uh, around the NBA. What are your thoughts on load management? And um, do you think that, you know, obviously media is taking this a little bit overboard. That's us. That, media, that's us. The media is us. And I, it will I one day to, be you, CJ. I, I want to be a part of yeah, players <laughs> and media. Can I, can I be, on, can I be uh, in between, uh, Kristen? Kind of? No? Okay. A little. Yeah, you could be both. That's okay, okay. CJ. You, CJ. Both, yeah, like, he I is. like that. I like that. <laughs> so then load management, go. <laughs> uh, I'm indifferent about it, honestly. I think that it is blown out of proportion at times. Um, as a player, as an organization, you have a right to do what's best for your team and for your players. If that's sitting guys out on back-to-back, if that's limiting minutes, if that's figuring out how to maximize their potential for a late-season run, I think you have a right to do that. At the same time, I understand why certain fans may be mad when they're spending money on games or betting on games, and that kind of changes the line. It changes how they're kind of looking at the situation. But um, for me, just speaking purely on, on how I operate, I get myself ready for a 82-game season. That's how I train. That's how I prepare in terms of sleep, uh, treatment, massage, soft tissue work, meditation, like whatever it takes to kind of get my body ready for a 82 season. That's what I do. In the event that I'm in a position to sit some games, especially late in the season because we've solidified a certain spot in the playoffs or they feel it's best for my body, I would definitely take them up on that uh, paid vacation. Um, but that's just how I feel about it. I think D and I lead the league in minutes right now, and we're four and six. And uh, I have no problem leading the league in minutes or miles as I've had as I've done in, in previous years, as long as my body is in the right position, right spot to continue to push forward. And as I get close to the thirty, I just kind of think about longevity and, and how I need to really take advantage of my sleep and treatment so that I can lead the league in minutes if I need to. You've also considered podcasting to be one of your healthy habits. At least from what I've read, you said that it gives you an escape. That is essentially what Candace and I are trying to do here. It's an escape from the everyday doing this in other rooms. (laughs) If you were to give us, though, any advice on a successful podcast, what would it be? Um, I think you guys are off to a great start. and You had Kobe on. You've had some great guests on so far. And it's really CJ McCollum. Exactly. I was going to name myself. But I think you're off to a great start. I think the biggest thing is the consistency and, and trying to find guests. As you go through and you kind of not guest out, it, it becomes harder and harder to, to get guests. And obviously, you got Turner backing you and you're able to kind of secure it. But um, as an athlete, I'm sure Kansas is, is figuring out that you know, we can be very uh, unreliable at times, as that's what I've noticed in the, in the athletic world. But my only advice would be enjoy it, have fun with it, and I uh, wish you nothing but the best of luck on, on landing uh, a diversified amount of guests. So you've obviously got the, got the podcast going. After basketball, could you see yourself full-time, behind the mic, maybe even with Turner? <sighs> that's a good question. See? Um, <laughs> It's something I've thought about um, since I majored in journalism in college, something I've kind of prepared myself for in terms of diversifying my portfolio, being able to go on TV versus write versus radio versus podcasting. Um, I definitely feel like it's something that I want to be a part of when I do retire. To what length or extent, I'm not sure. I do enjoy my relaxation. I enjoy traveling and vacationing. Hang on. See, what he's saying right now is <laughs> I'd be into it, but not working as often as the two of you do. <laughs> uh, am I going to cover 82 games as of right now? I mean, we I prepare. Retire? We go into the offseason preparing right. <laughs> for 82 games, CJ. It's no load lot. management here. None. I'm going to need load management <laughs> once I retire for a little bit. You know, I'll work on my stay-at-home dad skills and kind of tighten up, and then I'll probably jump back into it once I get tired. But it's 365 days in a year. That's a lot of time 
So I'm, I'm sure I'll be able to work some of those days for sure. I'm just saying. Potentially with Turner or whoever is interested. With in Turner. Yeah, that's okay. okay. I, I'm just saying Ledlow, Parker, and McCollum has that's, a ring to it. That's really nice. We it, can discuss the order of it's names. It's a podcast if he, or it's like a bank or a successful, you know, lawyer. Like it, yeah. A band? Yeah, it could we be a could band do. too. I'm like just saying. RPM? Like how, how are we abbreviating? <laughs> I like that. I like that. Right? When's the mixtape dropping? Really Let's like talk that. to Dame. See, now it all connects mm-hmm. because Dame then, then Dame can produce can our. Produce. You know what? Uh, CJ's thinking is I, I told him I had a heart out. I got to go. CJ, thank you so much for taking the time. <laughs> <laughs> no problem at all. I appreciate y'all having me on. Bye. Bye bye. Thank you, CJ. In this segment, usually NBA will stand for no basketball allowed, but in this episode, we've got to take a look inside the NBA before we can look outside of the NBA because Miami Heat guard Deion Waiters experienced a quote-unquote panic attack on the team's charter flight Thursday night after consuming a THC-infused edible. He's since been suspended for 10 games for conduct detrimental to the team. I think this will spark a conversation, no pun intended, about marijuana around the NBA. And even before this incident with Dion Waiters, Commissioner Adam Silver spoke last season about marijuana usage in and around the NBA on Howard Beck's Full 48 podcast. It's a question, if we ban marijuana, of what they'll then otherwise use. I've had players tell me that I don't smoke marijuana, or I don't use marijuana because you guys drug test and it's banned and I accept that. So instead I was written a prescription mm. by a team doctor for an anti-anxiety medication. And that medication makes me uncomfortable. And, and I recognize that that medication may be worse for the player than smoking marijuana, even if marijuana isn't great for you. And I also recognize that if they don't want anti-anxiety medication and they, don't, they can't smoke marijuana, they may drink more, which is perfectly legal. Obviously, don't we, you, you can't you know, overuse al- al- use alcohol in our league, but we don't have a prohibition on drinking. Mm-hmm. And that might be much worse for them. So where, where I am, in, and I think this is how our discussions have gone with, with the union, let's look to the experts to inform us, as I said, this is not uh, this is not one where it has to be adversarial. What's in the best interest of the players and what's in the best interest of the league? So before we talk about whether or not you agree with Commissioner Silver, I want to know whether or not you think this incident with Dion will perhaps halt some of that progress. I don't know if this issue with Dion will halt the progress, but I do believe that it brings negative attention to the purpose Because a lot of the purpose of the fight to legalize it has been to replace some medicines that have far worse effects than marijuana, THC, CBD, things like that. So it's about drawing that line of, are you doing it because you're recovering with a knee injury to play, there's swelling to help with pain management? Some of the similar reasons why you get prescribed some of these medicines. Then do you think that this incident could perhaps further the stigma surrounding marijuana usage? I do believe that it is a check on the side of people that are against legalizing it in the sense of the abuse, which is what you worry about. I mean, there was a point in our country, in our, in our time in our country where alcohol was illegal and... Um, the stigma behind that was a negative one. And just as we heard the commissioner speak about it, you know, too much of anything is a bad thing. And that's what we have to realize going into this. But the question is raised, you know, is this something that you need to look into? And the experts, as he spoke about, need to give more information because the biggest concern our players' health and safety, and not just, as we found out in football, not just the years they're playing, but in the future. Because if I'm taking a pain pill that's going to affect my stomach, my liver, my organs, and you're telling me I can take THC or CBD and it have no long-lasting effect or impact on my body, then are we doing it because just the stigma behind marijuana is bad and that's why we're not prescribing it and that's why it's on the drug test? Or are we doing it because it's really what's best for the players? Could then the NBA be at the forefront of helping to push this issue forward, even as states' laws continue to catch up? 
if there is a sports league that's going to do it, it's going to be the NBA. It's going to have to be. I, I feel like the NBA has always been on the forefront of change. If you look at the history of the game, always, whether it be in civil rights, whatever, it's always on the forefront of making change. Which has been so interesting to me as I've researched further on this topic to find that the former commissioner, David Stern, is also, I mean, a guy who... Could I call him rigidly conservative you can, on you can many say that. major issues? Feels as passionately as he does and spoke to Al Harrington about it in 2017. I think we got to change the collective bargaining agreement and let you do what's legal in your state. I don't think if marijuana is now in the process of being legalized, I would think you should be allowed to do what's legal in your state. So now I think it's up to the sports leagues to anticipate where this is going and maybe lead the way. Did you ever feel like the NBA would prescribe marijuana, but it would be once all the tests are done? It isn't about prescribing it. It's about deciding to take it off the banned substance of list because it's no different than other subjects that may work or not work with particular players. I'm now at the point where personally I think it probably should be removed from the banned list. Then do you agree or disagree with former Commissioner Stern that it should be removed from the banned substance list? I agree with the commissioner. Even while it's still illegal in most states? You know, we always joke that Los Angeles and California is a different world. <laughs> in, in Los Angeles and in California, in the last three to five years, you have seen the difference in, it, in the impact it has had in the amount of THC, CBD stores just around that five years ago would have been, you know, unheard of. And I do believe that if it's not affecting you in terms of long-term effects, I think that's what we're, we're forgetting. The long-term effects of some of these medicines and these drugs that are being prescribed. We don't have all day, Kristen, but you brought up uh, Lamar Odom in the sense of some of these athletes are being addicted to some of these painkillers that are being prescribed by team physicians. Which is to Commissioner Silver's point that he would rather some of these guys find a more natural solution to their pain management than some of these prescriptions that they're being prescribed that they're flat out not comfortable with. And I think the stigma of smoking marijuana, that's what the the, the perception is, is that you're going to get in your cars after games and you're going to smoke. And that's the thing that we're speaking about with Dion Waiters is setting it back. Abuse in anything you do is a negative thing. If you over abuse anything, it's, it has a negative effect on things. And so I think it's just finding the right balance, getting the right people that are knowledgeable in this subject to come forward. But I do believe the NBA will be the first sports league to legalize it. How then... I mean, I guess you can't make anything like this quote unquote fair while it's still illegal in most states. But how then do you make it more fair for the NBA teams that are in states where it is legal? Is that going to impact perhaps where players with pain management issues want to play? Well, everybody wants to come out to L.A. and California anyway. But I guarantee if it's only legal in the states in which it's state legal, you enter into a whole nother set of problems if you think about it. If I'm flying, if I'm on a away team and I fly to Los Angeles, am I then allowed to do something in another state that in my home state it's not legal and then it gets into team? I just think it has to be across the board it's legal. You think it has to be across the board acceptable for NBA players or across the board we wait until it's legal federally? I think across the board, it has to be wiped out as a banned substance on an NBA test drug test. That's a wrap on episode three. A huge thanks to Allison Felix, to CJ McCollum, 